Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I'm your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is uh, Saturday, uh, November 19th, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in. Uh, once again to yet another edition of our program. Later on, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire report. Uh, We'll have dispatches on the debate surrounding the final statement at the United Nations Climate Conference uh, being held in uh, Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. A political activist uh, in Egypt remains in detention despite international attention resulting uh, from the climate summit. The southern African state of Zimbabwe is continuing to seek readmission to the Commonwealth after an absence of nearly two decades. And the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says that testing uh, for the coronavirus should not lessen since the pandemic remains a major public health problem internationally. In the second hour, we listened to an extensive briefing from the World Health Organization, WHO Africa section, directed by Mashadiso Muete. Finally, we hear rare archival audio file of a speech uh, by African-American novelist, playwright, essayist, and public intellectual James Baldwin, uh, delivered in the fall of 1963 after the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. Uh, We'll take our musical interlude uh, with A.B. Quinzel from the West African State of Ghana, let's listen in. I'm 
Oh, 
Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, music from the West African state of Ghana. Music uh, by Alfred Benjamin Quinzel. And uh, he was a Ghanaian musician, uh, one of the uh, leading contemporary Ghanaian vocalists, uh, composer, and arranger. Uh, Quinzel won the Fantom from Evergreen Award, an honor bestowed upon a musician with 15 to 20 years of continuous music experience. A.B. Krenzel uh, just uh, joined the Ancestors um, on July 13th of this year, and uh, that was a memorial uh, to a legend uh, within uh, African culture. And right now we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment. These are some of the headlines in uh, today's uh, Pan-African Newswire. Uh, our lead story, of course, uh, deals uh, with the concluding uh, efforts uh, by the United Nations uh, Climate Change Summit, which uh, has been meeting over the last two weeks in Sharm el-Sheikh uh, in the North African state of Egypt. And uh, they have been, of course, uh, debates uh, both inside and outside uh, of the summit uh, surrounding what uh, practical uh, measures can be taken to halt and reverse uh, climate change. One major issue, of course, is the payment of damage and loss uh, to uh, former colonial and now neo-colonial states uh, for uh, the damage done uh, by the industrialized Western imperialist states. And uh, one, uh, of course, uh, angle to this uh, has been advanced uh, by Barbadian uh, Prime Minister Mia Motley. At the United Nations Climate Summit in Egypt, uh, leaders of developing nations have repeatedly said it is not fair to expect them to cover the cost of rebuilding from devastating weather events in a warming world, and plus invest in cleaner ind industry uh, while they also pay much higher interest rates on loans than richer nations. Uh, a plan that's been put forward by Barbados uh, Prime Minister Mia Motley would overhaul the way much uh, development lending works. It also is giving voice to developing nations struggling under rising debt from climate change. We were the ones whose blood, sweat, and tears financed the Industrial Revolution, uh, Motley said in a scathing address. Are we now to face double jeopardy by having to pay the cost as a result of those greenhouse gases from the Industrial Revolution? Debt has been growing in developing countries, uh, stopping funds for education, health, and clean energy. Uh, much of the increase in debt in some Caribbean countries is related to extreme storms, uh, Motley said in a recent essay. The plan would make it easier for countries in the Caribbean, Latin America, Africa, and Asia to get funds to beep, beep up defenses against warming and put off debt payments when disaster strikes. And, of course, uh, this plan uh, is outlined in detail. You can read it uh, in its entirety by logging on to uh, the Pan-African Newswire. Now, negotiators say they have struck a potential breakthrough deal on the thorniest issue of the United Nations climate talks in Egypt. The creation of a fund uh, for compensating poor nations that are victims of extreme weather worsened by rich countries' carbon pollution. Several cabinet ministers from across the globe uh, told the international media that agreement was reached on a fund that what negotiators call loss and damage. 
It's a big win for poor nations, uh, which have long called for cash, sometimes viewed as reparations, because they are often the victims of climate disasters, despite having contributed little to the pollution that heats up the globe. This is how a 30-year-old journey of ours has finally, we hope, found fruition today, said Pakistan Climate Minister Sherry Rahman, uh, who often took the lead for the world's poorest nations. One-third of her nation was submerged this summer by a devastating flood, and she and other officials used the motto, what went on in Pakistan will not stay in Pakistan. The United States, which is in the past, uh, has been reluctant to even talk about the issue of loss and damage, is working to sign on, said an official close to negotiations. If an agreement is accepted, it still needs to be approved in a unanimous decision late uh, this evening, but other parts of a deal outlined in a package of proposals put out earlier in the day by the Egyptian chairs of the talks are still being hammered out as negotiators head into what they hope is their final session. And uh, you can read this article, too, uh, in its entirety over the Pan-African Newswire website, uh, in addition to other reports uh, related to the COP27 conference in Egypt. And uh, also related to the North African state of Egypt, the family of imprisoned Egyptian activists, Allah Abdel Fattah, said they were allowed to see him for the first time in nearly two months. This happened uh, just two days ago on Thursday. And that he is very, very thin after ending a hunger strike that prompted widespread concern for his health. The activist's mother aunt, and one of his sisters visited Abdel Fattah at the prison of Wadi El Natrun north of Cairo. Uh, they said the conversation was conducted through a pane of glass with a headset during which he told them that he halted his hunger strike after collapsing in the shower last week. He was exhausted, <clears throat> weak, and vulnerable. The family said in a statement uh, read out by Abdel Fattah's aunt, <clears throat> Adaf uh, Suef, to journalists at the family's Cairo home. He was very, very thin. <clears throat> Abdel Fattah, who turns 41, who did turn 41 yesterday, is one of Egypt's most prominent pro-democracy voices. He had intensified a hunger strike and halted all calories and water earlier in November to coincide with the start of the United Nations Climate Conference, known as COP27, in the Egyptian Red Sea resort of Sharm el-Sheikh. Uh, he has spent most of the past decade in prison because of his criticisms of Egypt's rulers. Last year, he was sentenced to five years for sharing a Facebook post about a prisoner who died in custody uh, during uh, 2019. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. Zimbabwe has made very impressive progress in meeting conditions to rejoin the Commonwealth. A top official of the group of 56 mainly former British colonies said after an assessment mission, even as the opposition and other groups warned that the human rights situation in Zimbabwe from their perspective is rapidly deteriorating. Zimbabwe should be a part of the Commonwealth. We are traveling the same road hand in hand, said the organization's Assistant Secretary General Luis uh, Franceschi, who headed the assessment team. Zimbabwe has moved very fast, and there is a huge commitment to meeting demands such as democratic reforms, he told reporters in the capital of Harare on Wednesday. Uh, the Commonwealth team arrived in the southern African country earlier today and ended its mission on uh, uh, 
several days later, will end its mission several days later, it will compile a report to Commonwealth heads of government then who have the final say on Zimbabwe's application to rejoin. Former President, the late Robert Mugabe, pulled Zimbabwe out of the Commonwealth in 2003 after it became apparent that the organization would stand a suspension imposed a year earlier following uh, the 2002 elections. After taking power from Mugabe in 2017, uh, some five years ago, President Emerson Mnangagwa applied for readmission in 2018 as part of his push for greater international recognition and for the dropping of sanctions. Zimbabwe's bid uh, to rejoin the Commonwealth as part of Mnangagwa's administration's drive to re-engage with the international community after about two decades of sanctions by the Western imperialist states. And uh, finally, the head of the Africa's top public health institute is urging authorities across the continent to step up COVID-19 testing amid a concerning rise in new cases in some countries. The continent of 1.3 billion people saw a 37% rise in new cases over the past week. Ahmed Agwell, acting director of the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, said this just two days ago. Over the last four weeks, there have been an 11% rise in new cases, Agwell stated. He also said that COVID is still very much here with us, in fact, uh, when we look at the numbers, we see that there are some member states that are actually going into a new wave, and we are monitoring that closely, he said. When we have a clear analysis next week, we will be able to report to you if the new waves are holding or if those have been quickly brought under control. He mentioned not, he did not mention uh, which countries face a new wave of infection. South Africa is one of them. One of them. Africa's most advanced economy has been the most affected by COVID-19, the source of the bulk of confirmed cases and deaths. COVID-19 has infected 12.1 million people across Africa's 54 nations, accounting for 2% of cases globally, and at least 256,000 have died, according to figures from the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Vaccination rates in Africa continue to be low, largely because of short supplies and also in part because of hesitancy among some. Only 25% of Africa's people are fully vaccinated, and under 3% have received booster doses. Amid this phenomenon, we are seeing the numbers going up, Ogwell said. National health authorities should focus on testing more people for COVID-19. The Director General, Acting Director General of the Africa CDC went on to say that when we see the numbers rising and the testing relatively low is an indication that we need to be careful in public. And also we need to get ourselves vaccinated to avoid serious illness and even death when one is exposed to COVID. We know what we need to do. With that, uh, we're going to conclude the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In concluding uh, this segment of our program, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998, and since then it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in numerous newspapers, uh, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source 
on Pan-African and Global Affairs if you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire. So you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day. Just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, if you'd like to uh, have access to this program, uh, the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for Saturday, uh, November uh, the 19th, 2022, just go to the Pan-African Radio Network, and that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week.
Michigan uh, Stevie Wonder uh, with his track entitled Maybe Your Baby. Yeah, great track uh, from uh, Stevie Wonder. And right now we're going to move into our 
briefing uh, from uh, the African section of the world. And select your most preferred language. Vincent, please uh, explain in French. This is a briefing uh, delivered uh, by vous pouvez choisir votre langue de préférée pour suivre cette conférence de presse en cliquant sur le, le globe en bas à droite de votre écran et en choisissant le français. Merci beaucoup, Vincent. And now joining us all the way from Kampala in Uganda is Dr. Mashidisho Moeti, the WHO Regional Director for Africa, who is currently on mission in Uganda. This is a hybrid presser. So we will be having journalists in the room with Dr. Moeti also asking in-person questions as we take uh, the online journalists. I will now hand over to Dr. Moeti to introduce our other panelists. Good morning and welcome, Dr. Moeti. Good afternoon in Kampala, um, Mary, and uh, good day, bonjour, and welcome to all the journalists attending this press conference today. As Mary said, I'm joining you from Kampala in Uganda, where I'm wrapping up a three-day mission to observe the country's commendable response to the current Ebola outbreak. Along with providing an update on WHO's heightened efforts to support Uganda, I'll also discuss two other growing health threats on the African continent, diabetes and antimicrobial resistance. I'm very pleased to be joined by Lieutenant Colonel Dr. Henry Kyobe Bosa, the Uganda Ministry of Health Incident Commander for the Ebola outbreak. A very warm welcome, and thank you for making the time to be with us today. I'm also joined up here by the WHO representatives, Dr. Jonas Tegegn, who has been, of course, leading our team in our support to the response. So let me begin by commending Uganda's leadership. The President, His Excellency General Yoweri Museveni, the Honorable Minister of Health, Dr. Jane Ruth Acheng, and very importantly, the people and communities in Uganda, along with the health workers and authorities and key partners for a robust government-led response. However, since the outbreak was first declared on the 20th of September, the Sudan Ebola virus has now been detected in a ninth district, this one with a large urban population. Because cities favor the spread of the virus with their highly mobile residents and often crowded living and working environments, the confirmation of new cases in Jinja, following cases in Kampala and Masaka, demands that we push even harder to get ahead of the threat and reach zero fast. To date, there have been a total of 141 confirmed and 22 probable Ebola infections in Uganda and 55 confirmed and 22 probable deaths. WHO in the African region has deployed 80 experts to support the fast-paced response and assisted Ugandan health authorities to deploy a further 150, including 60 epidemiologists. We've also helped train nearly 1,000 health workers and village health team members in contact tracing and another 1,155 health workers in infection prevention and control in health facilities. 15,000 units of personal protective equipment or PPE were delivered to protect health workers, 
caring for patients. Most unfortunately, 19 health workers have already been infected and tragically, seven of them have died. We as partners all need to expand and intensify our support to the response so that we bring this outbreak to an end. And as such, the expected arrival of vaccine candidate doses next week in Uganda is welcome news indeed. WHO's Committee of External Experts have approved these candidate vaccines for inclusion in the planned clinical trial, the start of which marks a pivotal progression towards the development of the first vaccine against Sudan Ebola virus. A separate group of experts has also selected two potential therapeutics for trial, and a trial design is now being submitted for approval by WHO and the Ugandan authorities. Meanwhile, dedicated response teams are putting in incredible efforts on the front lines to safeguard communities. I was privileged to speak to some of these yesterday. It's encouraging that the outbreak is flowing in six districts with two reporting no cases in more than 42 days, but we cannot afford to become complacent and this robust support needs to be maintained. Communities also need to embrace the critical control measures to ensure everyone is working together to end this outbreak. WHO has launched an 88.2 million US dollar appeal to fund the response in Uganda and to support Ebola readiness in neighboring countries. Unfortunately, only 20% of these funds have so far been received. We plead that time is of the essence. Meanwhile, member states continue to grapple with a range of other health threats, two of which were the subject of dedicated International Health Days this month. The first is diabetes, which currently affects about 24 million people in the African region, but is projected to rise by almost 130% to 55 million in the next two decades. Yet, just fewer than half of all affected people are aware of their status, the highest deficit worldwide. Associated death rates are also 10 percentage points higher than the global average, according to new WHO analysis. Compounding the threat is that only half of everyone living with type 1 diabetes, the most common form of the disease amongst children, have access to the insulin that is critical to their survival. To halt the progress of this silent killer on our continent, increased access to diabetes diagnosis, treatment, and care is critical. The August 2022 endorsement by African health ministers of a WHO-led initiative called the PEN Plus marked an important step forward. As WHO, we commit our full support to member states' actions to institute the requisite measures, including making essential medicines, technologies, and diagnostics available and accessible at district hospitals. I'll turn now to World Antimicrobial Awareness Week, which starts tomorrow, and which aims to raise awareness of the risks posed by the overuse and misuse of antimicrobials, including antibiotics. Antimicrobial resistance, or AMR as it is known, known more commonly as drug resistance, occurs when disease-causing germs become resistant to traditional medication, that is antibiotics. This makes infections harder to treat and increases the risk of disease spread, severe illness, and death. Sub-Saharan Africa carries the heaviest burden globally of resistant bacterial infections 
which were responsible for nearly 5 million deaths worldwide in 2019, more than HIV, AIDS, and malaria combined. Since more than half of all deaths in the WHO African region are caused by infectious diseases that we manage with antimicrobial medicines, it becomes clear that AMR endangers decades of advance towards the control of health threats such as malaria, tuberculosis, typhoid, cholera, meningitis, and gonorrhea, among others. The excessive unnecessary use of antibiotics in humans and in food animals, which is one of the main drivers of AMR, need to be urgently addressed. I want to take this opportunity today to issue a call to action to African governments to avert a potential catastrophe by prioritizing investment in AMR strategies with a One Health approach, a vital currency for effective AMR implementation. Fundamentally, countries need to strengthen infection prevention and control measures and improve surveillance of antimicrobial resistant infections. The appropriate use and disposal of medicines needs to be promoted and regulated, supported by community education on the depth of the negative consequences of antimicrobial resistance. It's imperative that we work to maintain the critical balance between addressing AMR while preserving access to life-saving antibiotic medicines. I'll now hand over to our guest before taking questions to the media. Thank you very much for having joined us again and over to you. Thank you so much, Dr. Mawet. Uh, first, thank you so much for coming around to Uganda mm -hmm. to support us. Uh, we appreciate WHO's support to this response from the very beginning up to where we are. And in addition to WHO's support, we thank the support of other partners uh, as, as a country. Since the declaration of the outbreak on the 20th, after confirmation of the outbreak on the 19th in a Maryland individual in Mobile district. Since then, as Dr. Mowit said, we have had 141 confirmed cases and 22 probable cases. And so far, we've lost 55 individuals and 76 have been discharged and have been healed. Uh, uh, of note, uh, this is not the first outbreak in Uganda, actually mm -hmm. the sixth, and this is the fourth of Sudan Ebola virus. And we've had significant experience and expertise in this, but what we do know is that each Ebola outbreak comes is different, and we have to use different techniques to be able to respond to them. And each outbreak comes with different challenges which we are battling with. As we know, it took only just a week to have the outbreak coming out of the epicenter into the city. And as Dr. Mawet earlier said, it has moved to another big city and we have had secondary transmission. And that poses another challenge which we are battling with. But with the, the community with us, as we have seen the epicenter districts of Mugena and Cassandra, we think uh, we should be able to come on top of this. And knowing that, uh, when the population appreciates and understands the danger before before them, we are able to move very fast. Of course, we appreciate the complexities in the urban settings, as we've seen in Kampala, where one case generates several, several contacts that we have to follow up. And this is something that we are watching. We, we do know that the restriction of movements in the two 
districts has slowed down the transmission or the importation of cases outside the original epicenter districts. But that's not all. We need to continue working and make sure that we, we bring this outbreak to a speedy end. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Dr. Moeti and uh, Lieutenant Colonel Dr. Henry Bosa. And uh, we have heard from all our panelists right now. So it's your time, journalists, to ask your own questions. Uh, to do this, you can use the Q&A function on the Zoom platform. Tell us your name and the name of the media organization you represent. And for those uh, in the room, you can raise your hands and Elise will get to you to have your question asked. We have additional experts um, that are on hand to answer your questions. First, we have um, Dr. Jonas Tege, who is the WHO representative in Uganda. We have Dr. Anna Maria, uh, a medical officer in WHO uh, Geneva. She's responsible for research and vaccines. We have Dr. Patrick Otin, who is the Ebola outbreak incident manager. Dr. Walter Fuller, technical officer for antimicrobial resistance. And lastly, we have Dr. Sheikh Diallo, who is a technical officer for strategic uh, information. Um, I will start with uh, Paul, uh, who is uh, ready to ask his question. Paul, are you there? Yes, I'm there. I'm here. Thank you very much uh, for the opportunity. Uh, my first question goes to uh, uh, the uh, research lead at the WHO. We would like to have information about uh, the vaccine candidates and um, when, what are the hopes and uh, what is the outlook uh, and what insight can you give us about uh, the clinical trial? And um, I also want to commend the Uganda team uh, responding to the outbreak. And uh, something, uh, information came out, uh, I saw something on social media yesterday that uh, suggests that there could still be issues regarding getting people to adhere to the guidance in uh, considering those uh, that still want to carry out uh, burial rituals uh, for their relatives that died of this. So I want to know how uh, you are dealing with this, over, uh, contending with religious beliefs uh, in your efforts to control uh, the pandemic. Thank you very much, and uh, well done on your response. Okay, thank you, Paul. So your, the first part of your question will be taken by Dr. Anna Maria, and then the second part of your question will be taken by Lieutenant Colonel Dr. Henry Kobe, and uh, the WR could also complement. Thank you. Thank you very much. Good afternoon. So uh, the first thing I would like to say is that WHO wants to recognize and commend the leadership of the Minister and of the Makerere University, where our principal investigator is located. Thanks to their leadership and hard work in the past four weeks, the teams are now ready to start the vaccine trial uh, up to international standards, and this is really has to be recognized. The second is that, as we announced yesterday, we have an independent expert committee that we call it the Vaccine Prioritization Working Group. This committee reviewed the evidence provided by the three developers of the vaccines being considered and recommended that the three candidate vaccines uh, should be in the trial. 
These vaccines are two vaccines that use an adenovirus as the means of transport and presenting the, the virus protein to the immune system. One is called the CHATRI, is the uh, adenovirus 3 that has been developed by um, the Sabin Vaccine Institute with support from the US, United States of America government via uh, an agency called BARDA. The second vaccine is uh, the uh, CHADOX-1, that is a similar vaccine uh, using an adenovirus being developed by the University of Oxford, the Jenner Institute, with support from the United Kingdom government and being manufactured by the Serum Institute of India. That's the first two vaccines. The third vaccine is what we call a vesicular stomatitis virus vaccine. Uh, that this virus um, that is harmless to humans is used to transport the protein of the Ebola virus also that in induces immune response. This vaccine uh, has been developed initially by Merck, but now it's being sponsored by IAVI, the International AIDS Vaccine Institute in the United States, and they also have support from the United States government via BARDA. So we have three vaccines for which we have data from preclinical data, so it means studies in the laboratory and in animals. And for two of them, we have already some safety information that suggests that they will induce an immune response and also that they have chances of being efficacious. The other thing that I want to say is that these platforms are not new to us. Uh, the BSV platform is the same one that is used for the Sair Ebola virus, and about 350,000 people have been vaccinated in Africa thanks to the courageous efforts of the researchers in the DRC, in Sierra Leone, and in Guinea. And the adenovirus vaccine has been extensively used, the CHADOX-1, for the COVID vaccines. And for the CHAD-3, it was used in thousands of people in clinical trials back in the day of the 2014-16 epidemic. So uh, we don't know if this, we don't have direct evidence that these vaccines induce protection in humans. This is why WHO is working with the government of Uganda and the Makerere University to conduct this trial. But the choice of the vaccines is based on the best data available to our independent experts. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Anna Maria. And then, uh, Dr. Uh, Harry, please. Uh, thank you so much, Paul, for the question. Uh, it is true we, we've had variations in adherence to SOPs at the beginning, but we are seeing this progressively changing. And I think you're referring to that incident where one individual was uh, actually exhumed leading to a relatively big cluster of infections. This has not since happened again, and we think it, has, it will not happen again. But we also need to understand that as, uh, uh, the population at the beginning, this index of suspicion or appreciation of Ebola was low, and this has progressively changed over time. And we learned that uh, that adherence to SOPs or adherence to the guidance that is given by the Minister of Health uh, took a bit of time, but now where we are, uh, where initially we had a lot of family level transmission and also facility level transmission, this has since changed. Initially we saw several individuals moving from one uh, facility to the other. This is progressively changing. 
Initially, we had individuals moving to traditional hitters, the singlets and less of this. And for example, most of the cases that we've seen in Kampala, people actually report early and we have good clinical outcomes. And of course, noting that the adherence to, 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 to SOPs, that's why we're seeing that the force of infection in the two epicenter districts has actually come down. As Dr. Mowetaria said, that we are having fewer and fewer cases coming from the epicenter. And the only major worry that we have is the current extension of the outbreak in a major city, which are closer, closer following. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Henry. Dr. Jonas, do you want to weigh in on this? Yeah, I, I think only one point. Uh, as uh, as you know, with Ebola, uh, the disease starts in the community, and uh, it's very important to have uh, a full engagement of the community and creating the risk awareness and bring uh, all uh, community leaders on board so that we have uh, the adherence as well as the preventive aspect from the community. I think that the, our biggest tool should be risk communication and community engagement. And that's an area which we haven't seen much investment from our uh, partners. And we would like our partners, donors, to make uh, resources available to address these issues. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Jonas. And next, I'll go to Anne Soy from BBC. Are you ready to ask your question? Yes, I am. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Um, my question will um, mainly go to WHO. There have been questions asked about the completeness of the data that we are being given uh, from Uganda, and these concerns are coming from experts, some of them on the front line. Are you concerned from where you sit that there are cases that could be missed, um, that are being missed in the community, as we saw with the woman who traveled to Masaka, for instance? She was lost to follow up. Um, and then she sparked an outbreak there, and then we recently had Ginger. Um, does the response team or does the response have a grip on this outbreak? And secondly, on the 25th of this month, schools will close and children will be traveling all over the country to go back home. Um, did the school closure has been brought forward? Are you concerned about what that might portend in the, mid in the midst of um, an outbreak? Thank you, Anne. Um, I'll start with you, Dr. Jonas, and uh, Dr. Moeti could weigh in. <laughs> and Henry will, will also help us. Uh, I, I am comfortable that uh, we have as much access to the data as we need. Uh, could we get more data by, by doing more investment in contact tracing and more case investigation? Yes. And also, we are uh, seeing that the response is uh, at, a, at, at a good level. Uh, all the things which should happen are happening. Uh, the, the issue is uh, if we want in this time of uh, real-time uh, social media, people expect all the information to be available on day one or on day zero. Uh, maybe we haven't reached that, but 
Uh, as we go on, I see uh, that we, we are getting access, not only access, getting and investigating that data uh, as much as uh, we need to. Uh, I, I don't believe any of my team are impaired in doing their job uh, from lack of data because data entry is done with partners in the room. Uh, when this data is entered into the system or when case is investigated, WHO people and other partners like CDC are in the room. Uh, so I, I am not very much uh, concerned about uh, that. Uh, could we get more data? Could we share more data? Always, yes. We, we, we would like to get more data. We would like to share more data and consolidate all those data, verify that data. But that is, uh, in a more ideal situation, probably uh, we, we want every data to be available to us, which uh, for the sake of this outbreak, what we all the data we need is uh, available. And uh, we are part of the investigation and we are part of the people collecting those data. Uh, it's, it's a matter of time. Uh, as for the uh, closure of school, uh, it's uh, preponing the, the vacation time. Uh, and I think the, the ministry have presented uh, uh, a, a credible uh, argument and uh, probably Dr. Henry Chobe could, could uh, clarify on that. We find it to be uh, advancing it by a week or two would not affect the uh, effect on children uh, because uh, the safety is important as well. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much, uh, for the question. Maybe I need to start with the fact that the, the lady, the pregnant mother, 22-year-old, who moved to Massacre, uh, over over 14 days, we've had not had any secondary transmission coming from Massacre. So that has to be very clear. That much as the lady moved there, and including all that the work we are doing there, we've not had any secondary transmission coming through. We've not had any secondary transmission coming through. On the issue of data and uh, uh, the sources of data, some excited responders in the field may actually send out data. And the good thing with Ebola is one. If at any rate as a country were hiding any data, the evidence would be out and we'll be seeing people dying in the mass. And we'll be seeing most of these people turning up, turning up at healthy facilities. So if anyone says, and the, the good thing like Gabriela says, uh, we do process this data, the access to information, both primary data and analyzed and semi-analyzed data, actually is shared by every partner. And we work together at all levels of the response, right from the tactical level through the highest level. And we share this information. But what happens sometimes, we have specific reporting times if we do have a reporting time as 2200 hours, and then we have our next reporting time 2200 hours, for any data that may come after then, we will report it in the subsequent reporting. And that creates confusion and excitement among some people who are in the field indicating that we're hiding data. Uh, for the lady that actually went to massacre, our findings are not, not that we missed her. 
we think she had an exposure in a facility where one individual actually had been treated in Kampala. We never hid this information. And uh, we, we, think, we think we shall continue to share as much information and all the information available as, as it comes through. On the earlier closure of schools, one of the things is that uh, we don't have diffuse transmission of Ebola in this country. And we think for now, schools are relatively safe. So even when we let children go back home, we don't think that we shall create a dispersal effect and spread the disease across the country. That would be different if we had diffuse transmission coming from many places, and that would cause a much bigger risk. And if that was the case, we should have approved, we could have planned for that in a different way. But again, going back to the issue of data and information, as a country, we share information as much as possible with all partners. We work together from the lowest level to the highest level of the response. And we shall continue doing so. Uh, we shall continue doing so. And we have no reason whatsoever, whatsoever as a country, on why we should deny anyone data or hide information. But of course, understandably, outbreaks are very complex. And understandably, in the, in, the, in, the, in the urban settings, that the listing of contacts is a very complex issue, which we are coming to, to terms to. But as much as possible, we do that. But the other thing that I want to explain to, to, to uh, around me is that uh, cases going out of one place to the other is one thing. But the most important thing is how fast we get them. And this is what we have done. And we shall continue doing by enhancing surveillance across the country, by making sure that we have a very rapid turnaround time of results so that we process these results and these patients on time. And have those that have been identified beyond the epicenter districts in a time so that we limit further spread. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Henry, for that elaborate response, and Dr. Jonas. Dr. Moretti, do you want to weigh in on this? Um, thanks, Bill. Yeah, just very briefly, I mean, just, just to reiterate that um, our experts, especially uh, of late, uh, first of all, to say that we had a team that's embedded, working closely with the Ministry of Health team that's been looking at the data. So those colleagues have had access to the data from the beginning. We now have additional co colleagues who are able to access the raw data, meaning to, to look at the original data and to be able to advise further. And these are some senior colleagues at the regional and global levels so that we see with them what to do with this data, how to use it most advantageously to guide the, the intervention. So I, I'd just like to add that uh, we do now have uh, access to the data. I, I think in terms of people moving around, uh, it was mentioned that um, the community's understanding, being reassured, accepting some of what needs to be done is a core part of such a response. People will move around. I think that's natural. People will be frightened and be nervous about being restricted. I think some people who may know that they are ill 
may try to go somewhere else. I think that's something that we expect to happen in an outbreak. What we need to be clear about is what we are doing to understand, not only to be saying things to people, but to understand some of their own concerns, their fears, their beliefs, so that we anticipate this in adjusting our interventions. We make sure that the people who are relaying the messages is not just officials, but it's people that they actually believe and trust. So they do unusual things and allow themselves to be exposed, if you like, or restricted uh, to help us all in the, in the response. I think what's very important is the strength of our contact right down to the community level with our health facilities to be able to track and follow people who move around and uh, the communication with people. So I think there are some things we know that will happen. We anticipate this will happen. We don't expect everybody to 100% listen to everything we ask from the start. That's why we have a response, but we're very encouraged by the way that this is evolving now while accepting that um, the risk in a big city like Kampala is really uh, quite heightened and we are making sure that we are scaling up the capacity to respond appropriately for the circumstance. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Moeti. And then I turn to you, Elise. Please uh, take questions from journalists in the room. Yeah, Mary, we already have three questions from journalists. Uh, let's start with the gentleman from the technique. Thank you so much. My name is Vincent. And welcome to Rachel One in Kabbalah. Our first two questions went to Professor about the archipelago uh, resistance force that we put forward. We talked about it in the context that uh, it is a huge problem that is escalating over the day as the days go by. But since your acknowledgement of this, I don't know what strategic recommendations or interventions you put forward as an entity responsible mm -hmm. for this continent, the African continent, mm -hmm. so that the governments therein go by or abide by so that these things come. Because in all reports we are seeing that we're fighting poison and that in a way from the medicines, medications and everything. Here is about uh, yes, President Sebene was addressing the nation a couple of days ago and they said it is if people refuse to declare themselves uh, is considering reporting, doing, establishing an interstate kind of uh, uh, arrangement where they report so and so is a contact uh, report and everything. Are you liaison with him on this point? Uh, do you agree with him this kind of approach, uh, given the respect of uh, so many other uh, health, health uh, confidentiality and so many other concerns? Then to Dr. Cho, when you say that uh, we have passed a family transmission, and they, you said uh, we have we had a familiar transmission stage, we had the facility transmission kind of stage, and now we are seeing pockets in the major towns. Could you give us where Uganda stands now in terms of uh, the Ebola, uh, Ebola status? If someone says, like, are we community infection stage? Where are we right now? If someone asks that question. Uh, DWR, uh, Dr. Wadmire, you talk about, you always talk about resources. Can you quantify this? And finally, it's about the vaccine narrative. We have seen the vaccines being deployed in the DRC uh, in the recent past. We don't want to allow or reject that narrative, but then the magnitude of the problem is one of the most 65 people. By now, I'm not saying only because there are few, but uh, 65 in the context of other epidemics that we've seen. What warranties the vaccine initiative rather than treating new cases and getting data with them? 
Thank you so much. Uh, I think these questions, we have three questions actually, not one only. And uh, we will start with, we have three parts. The first one, the resource mobilized by WHO, if we can quantify that. This question will go to Dr. Jonas. We have the question on the vaccine going to Anna Maria and the question on COVID going to Dr. Kilgrim. I think she's done. You've missed out on. You missed out on AMR. AMR. Okay. I'll start, Maybe, I'll start on AMR. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. Thank you for your question on antimicrobial resistance. You can't hear? Are you fine? Okay. Can you hear me now? Yes. Okay. Great. That's fine. So thanks for the question about antimicrobial resistance and what is it that WHO is doing. I mean, we have a program on antimicrobial resistance which has been um, intensified over the past few years with, with uh, resources being provided by one country to make sure that we accelerate the work that's been done actually at the global level. So one of the most important things is to raise the awareness of government so that they provide the policy environment in which actions can be taken by different groups around protecting the efficacy of the, of the antibiotics that we have. Because the, the key issue is that if we use antibiotics widely in certain ways, we drive the emergence of resistance in the, the, the microorganisms to these, to these uh, medicines. First, in addition to working with governments, helping them develop a plan and framework for what they are going to be doing, it's very important to raise the awareness of the medical fraternity. So those people that prescribe antibiotics, because we know that there is an excessive use of antibiotics for infections that don't actually need antibiotics. So one of the issues is to raise the awareness about prescription practices and the use of antibiotics by the medical fraternity so that you only prescribe an antibiotic when it's actually needed. Secondly, raise the awareness of the public about the fact that if you, have, if you have a viral infection like a flu, you actually don't need an antibiotic. You will get better without using an antibiotic. We need also to work with the pharmacist so that people can't just come walk in and buy an antibiotic over the counter without a prescription. So we need to work with different sections of uh, the medical system. We need to work with the medical council that regulate the practice so that they, and, and the medical associations, so that we persuade, train, remind the professionals about the need to be careful about the use of antibiotics, because the disaster is that if um, antibiotic resistance uh, bacteria emerge, for example, they can sweep through a population and we will not have a tool to use to control an infection among the, the infections that I listed earlier on. Um, and then the other thing is that uh, the, the excessive use of antibiotics for animals then leaks into the storage systems, can leak into the water systems where people have to use water which is not um, processed and purified. And that drives further the emergence of organisms that are resistant to, to, to uh, antibiotics. So there's a whole range of actions within the national policies, with the medical fraternity, with the public, with the pharmacies. We need to make sure that you can't just walk into a market and buy an antibiotic without having a prescription, which is something that is a problem in our countries. And then very importantly as well, need to work with the testing of the quality of medicines so that we don't get what are called fake medicines of poor quality being sold 
and you think as a doctor you're prescribing a good antibiotic to a patient and they're getting something which is substandard. So all of that is part of the action that needs to be taken to preserve the effectiveness of uh, antibiotics and to minimize the further emergence of antimicrobial resistance. Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, excerpts uh, from a briefing uh, delivered uh, by the Africa desk of the World Health Organization headed by Dr. Masadiso Mwete, uh, who during this briefing uh, was in Kampala, Uganda, uh, in response uh, to the Ebola virus disease outbreak uh, there over the last several months. And um, they were discussing the methods utilized to contain uh, the outbreak and other uh, aspects uh, of the outbreak and its history uh, in uh, Uganda. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide radio broadcast. Uh, I am your host, Abayomi Azikawe. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners uh, for tuning in uh, once again to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with our concluding segment.
Detroit's own Temptations uh, from 1969, track entitled Message to the Black Man. And uh, right now we want to move into a rare archival audio file of a speech uh, delivered by African-American novelist, uh, playwright, essayist, and public intellectual James Baldwin. This was delivered in 1963 in the aftermath uh, of uh, the bombing of the 16th Street uh, Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama. That occurred on September the 15th of 1963. It was carried out by uh, the Ku Klux Klan. And uh, this speech uh, was given at a public meeting uh, that occurred in New York City in response to the uh, bombing of uh, the 16th Street uh, Baptist Church, where four African-American girls uh, were killed and others were wounded uh, in that horrendous uh, act of uh, terrorism. Let's listen to this speech uh, delivered uh, by Baldwin in 1963. Good evening. I hope that nobody will think I'm copying a plea if I say I'm a little tired. And so if you can't hear me up there, you have to let me know. Now, before I begin, let me say this. I have set arbitrarily, I have set us the somewhat delicate task of discussing our common trouble tonight. That is, there are some things that I want to talk about to suggest to you, and then I want to find out what you think, and perhaps we can establish a dialogue, and if we are extremely disciplined and hard-headed, passionate and moral, we might be able even to rock that rock which is called Washington. I don't think, I know in fact, that when this meeting was envisioned on the 28th of August in Washington, when Bayard suggested that we ought to um, have some kind of open discussion about what follows the Washington March. Obviously, Bayard, neither Bayard nor I nor any of you, supposed that less than four weeks later, we would be representatives of a nation which is, or which certainly ought to be, in mourning. Now, I have to say some very reckless things tonight And so I want to make it absolutely clear that I am talking for myself. I am not, I might be at other platforms and other occasions, more or less representing this or that organization or this or that committee, but tonight 
I am talking to you as Jimmy Baldwin, who was born in Harlem 39 years ago, who has a certain responsibility to the people that produced him. That is all of you. And I'm speaking to you, if I may say so, not as an organizer, and not as a Negro leader, and not as a public figure, not as any of those things, but as one of the poets that you produced. We have to talk about economics tonight, and in some detail, we must talk about morals, and I think in some detail, and we must talk about something even more difficult to put one's finger on, which for the moment we will call morale, and the assumption on which I am speaking is this, that whether or not we like it, we have reached a point, black and white in this country, where all of the previous systems of communication, negotiation, accommodation has become unusable. To discuss the economics first, a few days ago, it was suggested by some of us, as forcefully as we knew how, that in order for the country to be unable to ignore and to forget the slaughter of six children in an American city, and in order to join the issue and bring the battle to where the battle really is, that is to say, to strike at the economic structure, that no one, black or white, should buy any presents for Christmas. I think that we should spell this out perhaps a little more precisely. I mean, and now I'm speaking for myself, that in this Christian nation, Christmas is mainly, as indeed are most churches, a commercial endeavor having nothing whatever to do with the birth or the death of Christ. That if one begins to serve notice, ultimately on the banks, that we, the citizens of this country, do not consider that we have the right to celebrate Christmas this year, and that furthermore, we will use every weapon in our power to force this on the attention of the American Republic, which unluckily, I have to say, has its conscience mainly in its po pocketbook. I believe that we will begin to see some notion of our potential power. Let me put it this way. Before this country was established when the country was being established. And this, apart from what one's textbooks say, and in contradistinction to the television myths about 
the building, the discovery of America. The people who came to America, as it turns out, were neither heroes, saints, nor pilgrims. They were simply people who couldn't make it where they were. And that is why they came. They came here to make, as we like to say, a better life for themselves and their children. And as it turned out, and as it always does indeed turn out, what they meant by a better life for themselves and their children was the opportunity to make more money and oppress somebody else. Which is what they did. The Indians had vanished, except for those we have under protective custody. <laughs> and in order to build the country, it was necessary to find a source of cheap labor. And therefore, 400 years later, I represent the only man who never wanted to come here. But if I had not come under the double coercion of the Bible and the gun, I very much doubt that we would have all those railroads and cotton would never have become king and in short the American economy would be at best a very different matter. Now if we had the economic weight to line the track and dam the rivers and hold the cotton and also raise the children, we can now use that weight for the first time for ourselves and for the liberation of this country. It is not true that there is nothing Negroes can do to help themselves, A, and B, it is not true that we, this nation, must be perpetually blackmailed by our government. The government represents us. And finally, See, neither is it true, as so many of the Negroes' friends would have us believe, that the only terms on which we can move to freedom are the terms of Harry Ashmore or Harry Golden. We, the people, are responsible for our own freedom. We are not begging for it. It is up to us to take it.
Mr. Livingston said a little earlier, something I would like to paraphrase. He said, quoting a friend of his in Birmingham, the only thing worse than being black in Birmingham is being black and white together. But I would like to paraphrase that a little bit, speaking now of morality, that the only thing worse these days than being a black man in America is being a white man in America. I mean that we are living in a segregated society, which does not mean, as people imagine, that it is simply I who am segregated. It means you are, we all are, and we cannot talk to each other because of the force of social custom and the tyranny of the Southern oligarchy. When I talk about economics, therefore, I am trying to suggest to you, to all of you, that all of you begin to think in very concrete terms. For example, Birmingham is a monstrous city indeed, but Birmingham is not really any worse than New York. There is no place, there is not one square inch of American soil in which a black man can be considered to be free. And if that is so for black men, that is true for all of us. <laughs> New York is not a segregated city by an act of God or by accident. It is a segregated city partly because a vast number of people and a vast complex of interest make a tremendous profit on the blood of black boys and girls, on the continued imprisonment and the continued demoralization of one-tenth of our population. Now, if it is so that Harlem exists principally for the benefit of people who like money, then it is also possible that one can begin to organize in the ghettos of this nation a massive civil disobedience campaign. And let me, spend, let me spell out a little bit, I want to be as precise as I can, of what I mean by that. I was born in Harlem. I was raised in Harlem. And indeed, as long as I live, I will never be able really to leave Harlem. As they say, you can take the child out of the country, but you can't take the country out of the child. I know, therefore, what, what rents one pays for what. I know what you pay for meat, cabbage, clothes, life insurance, theft insurance, fire insurance, and all of this money feeds, ladies and gentlemen, 
helps to feed the oppressor who uses the money to keep you in jail. Now isn't it worth considering what one might be able to do if instead of meekly submitting to this species of rape, one decided that instead of paying the rent, one refused to pay the rent. And when it is said that it is illegal to pay the rent, the answer is it is immoral to charge rent for the houses in which we live. I think that this, for example, among other things, begins to force the economic structure to deal with the problem which will destroy us if we do not deal with it. Because no matter what I may feel, for example, about nonviolence, or no matter how I may feel about how people, people should treat each other, and no matter how I try to live my life, I'm also aware, and I must be aware, that most people are not really interested or do not dare perhaps, in any case do not, act toward others as they would like to have others act toward them. And therefore, there is something ultimately futile and terribly dangerous with having so many Negro boys and girls and men and women in the streets so long. I know that this peculiar country has admired the doctrine of nonviolence for six or eight or nine years and has applauded all those children and all those ministers and all those men and women who went to jail, who got beaten with chains and with hoses, and who were attacked by dogs, has admired them and has done nothing whatever to help them. And first, And furthermore, not only that, which would be bad enough, intends to keep on admiring them and sending them to jail and doing nothing whatever to help them. Now I think it is time to blow the whistle. I think it is time to begin to deal with the power structure. We're not dealing with white people. It's not a matter of what white people think about you or what, even what they think about themselves. What one has to do is examine and overhaul the system, the system which creates it and perpetuates it. It is very important parenthesis, I think, that I probably ought to make. One's got to point out, I think, that in this country, since the McCarthy era, and it's one of the reasons for our absolutely, absolutely spectacular impotence, anyone who mentioned the word economics 
was promptly given a ticket to Moscow. I think it is beneath me to say that I am not a communist. I think it's beneath the nation and very dangerous for the nation to raise this peculiar red herring the moment one begins to deal with things as they are. Now, the nation which admires the doctrine of nonviolence has never, in my experience, and never as far as I know in its history, which began, if you remember, in Europe, admired nonviolence before. <laughs> One of the myths of the English is they would never be slaves. One of the reasons Gary Cooper was such, and Humphrey Bogart were such powerful movie stars, they always had a gun. It's only when a black man says that he might go out and find himself a gun that the country becomes Christian for the first and only time. <laughs> now, speaking for myself, and trying as best I can to discharge what I take to be my responsibility to everyone in the streets, including me, I don't want to see any more blood. Nobody's blood. My God. You no, know, if we could end the nightmare tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock, I could die, you know, in peace. But in fact, the nightmare will not be ended tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock. And the nation which has admired these boys and girls and men and women overlooks the fact that a boy who was, let us say, 17 in 1955 has now spent eight years in the streets, is probably in a doctor's care for being beaten half to death by the power structure, ladies and gentlemen, not simply by some idle policeman. Policemen know who they're working for. <laughs> and by this time, the boy and his wife and his children are very nearly at the end of their rope and are about to crack. This is why it is so important now to try to be precise about what it is that we must do. It is impossible, all my liberal friends and critics to the contrary, it is absolutely impossible for any Negro in this country to be fitted into the structure as it now exists. That is not a possibility. One must be willing to take upon oneself the, the responsibility of examining and changing the structure so that it becomes more human for everybody. What the Negro's friends pretend and I'm sorry, baby, but with friends like that, you don't need no enemies, you know. <laughs> what the Negro's friends pretend is that all the Negro wants is just another Cadillac. He wants to get to be just like Eisenhower. Well, I, speaking for myself, would rather cut my throat than suppose that my forefathers bled and suffered and died for this, in this country in order to become yet another blank mediocrity.
what we can do. And again, if you remember what I tried to say about economics, and I talked about the landing of the track and what would have happened if we hadn't lined the track. If you think about the myths that American white people have created about American black people, you begin to have some notion of the weight black people have in white people's consciences. It was never true, for example, that I came here wanting to rape nobody, you know. And in fact, I very rarely carried a knife. And I'm not a whole my liquor. But the myths to which one is subjected are the most terrifying symptom of the emotional and spiritual and sexual poverty and the panic of the American people. If one is aware of this, then one recognizes, I think this is the most valuable suggestion, that it is not the Negro who is in jail. It is white people who are in jail. When white people can produce, when this white republic can produce, in the streets of Birmingham, for example, children who can do with those, what those black children did, then we may be beginning to approach equality. I think the other reason, and perhaps the most important reason, that I'm throwing the suggestions out to you tonight, is that in this country, every black man born in this country until this present moment is born into a country which assures him in as many ways as it can find that he is not worth the dirt he walks on. Every Negro boy and every Negro girl born in this country until this present moment undergoes the agony of trying to find in the body politic, in the body social, outside himself, herself, some image of himself or herself which is not demeaning. And if you doubt me, you check out your textbooks and Hollywood. To name only those two things. Now many, indeed, have survived and at an incalculable cost. And many more have perished and are perishing every day. If you tell a child and do your best to prove to the child that he is not worth life, it is entirely possible that sooner or later the child begins to believe it and acts on it. It is one of the reasons, if I may be rude, that in every ghetto in this country, Saturday night is so dangerous night among Negroes. They let it out with each other because they are too intimidated 
by what we still refer to as man. And what I am trying to suggest is that we have the power to force the country to change its image of us, and we can do this by proving to ourselves and to the country what we can do for ourselves. We don't need yet to become the president of General Motors. We simply need to call the country on the common disaster, and they cannot put 20 million people in jail. You're listening to James Baldwin on Voices of Pacifica. You can obtain a copy of this program and other public radio programs by calling 1-800-735-0230. Something happens to a person, as I know we all know, when he has achieved his first breakthrough. All I know about my own life, for example, is that I've been scared to death for 39 years and six months. (laughs) And all I know about fear is that if you're afraid of it, walk toward it. No Negro in this country, and no citizen of this country who aspires to create this country has any reason whatever to be afraid of, let us say, for example, Senator Eastland. We must make, can I say, the establishment afraid of us. And it's perfectly true, you know, I'm speaking only for Jimmy Baldwin again, that everybody in the country, in Washington, was terrified of the very idea of a march on Washington, and and can scarcely be said to have embraced it until they realized they couldn't call it off. Now, if we begin to assess our real weight, our real potential, in the light of our common danger, we can get through this. We can win. We can turn the country into something which makes it a little less difficult to become a man. It is very hard to be black and grow up in this country. Manhood, as a friend of mine said, is a very dangerous pursuit for a black man. But I beg you to observe that it has also become a very dangerous pursuit for a white man. That is one of the reasons for Birmingham. It is not possible that all those people in that city really believed or really believe that they have the right to slaughter children. They don't believe that. They're afraid to speak. One of the reasons they're afraid to speak 
is that the standards by which we live, black and white, north and south in this country, are unlivable standards. It is not important to be safe. It is not important to get a car. It is not important to make it. It is important to become a man. And this is what we have forgotten. And that is one of the reasons that the caliber of our political representatives has become one of the mockeries of the 20th century. There is, my friends, really, a point at which one has to say, I will not choose between the lesser of two evils. There is no such thing as a lesser of two evils. If the political machines in Washington and elsewhere in the nation cannot throw up better material than Mr. Goldwater, Mr. Nixon, Mr. Kennedy, and so on down an extremely dreary line. <laughs> then perhaps we, the people whom these dreary people are supposed to represent, ought to find a way of being represented. We are not, are we, at the mercy of our political institutions if we created them we are responsible for them. We have the right and the duty to overhaul them, to change them. We are not always so helpless that Senator Easton has to stay there forever. <laughs> Who said so? Isn't it a scandal that in a civilized nation the death of six children should be met by the cynical, I repeat, cynical appointment of a football player and ex-general. to go in any Birmingham barber shop and talk to anybody. I dare them. And I think that commission, the appointment of that commission, the very notion, and the apathy with which the country has greeted it, proves my point. We have no right to allow the death of six children, and our common disaster, and our common crisis, and our moral crisis, to be met in this way. It proves, if anything does, that the terms of negotiation must now be radically changed. One cannot negotiate 
with the representatives of one's oppressor. One must, really, one must force the administration to recognize that as long as Eastland holds his office, is a Democrat, no one who wants a free country can vote the Democratic ticket. And as long as Goldwater holds his place, no one who wants a free country can vote the Republican ticket. It is time to let the nation know that the death of my child, I as a black man, and the spiritual death of your child, you as a white man, cannot be met by sending down a commission to find out what happened. We know what happened. <laughs> what we have to do is prevent it from happening again. And in order to do that, one doesn't beg the Birmingham City Fathers for a truce. You use whatever weight you have to force them to recognize your presence in that city, in that state, and in this country as a man. No matter what it costs, who. I want to say two more things, and then I will leave you. One of them is, it's very important to recognize that the economy of which we are so proud has very shaky foundations. It is very important to recognize that in any case, the economy as it now exists cannot, does not, and cannot supply full employment, that there are more white people out of work numerically than Negroes, and that the future does not look bright. And in my view, though I'm willing to be corrected, I think it is better to spotlight this condition now than wait and have it collapse and precipitate chaos. We can guide the avalanche, or we can try. We haven't got to surrender to it. And the last thing I want to say to you, to suggest to you, is that we in this country, black and white, do have in our hands at this moment an enormous and expensive opportunity. If we can think through our situation, if we can face it, we can do something which has not been done in the history of the world before. The terms of our revolution, the American Revolution, the terms are these. Not that I drive you out or that you drive me out, but that we come together and embrace and learn to live together. That is the only way that we can have achieved the American Revolution. Now, if we can face this, and it involves facing a great many things, it demands that white people face the fact 
that I, for example, or any black person they will ever meet or, or have ever met. I'm not an exotic rarity. I am not, um, I'm not a stranger. I'm none of those things. On the contrary, for all you know, for all you know, I might be your uncle, your brother, your cousin. <laughs> Among other things. <laughs> One of the things that has happened here, and the pathology of the Deep South proves it, so does the pathology of the North, which dictates to them that they move out when I move in. Among other things which have to be excavated here is the fact that this long history is also the history of a love affair. One has got to face this. I'm no longer really black. Maybe I would like to be, maybe I'd like to go back to Sierra Leone, for example, that was where I came from. But I've been here a long, 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 long time. And I am now a part of you. And you are a part of me. And the conditions of our maturity, which is our survival, is that we accept this fact and rejoice in it. If we could do that, we might open up and by the example of our own lives and bodies, a possibility that in the future, mankind all over the world will not find it necessary to blow each other up in order to settle a quarrel. Thank you. That was a talk by James Baldwin, given in New York City, September 25, 1963, less than a month after the March on Washington and ten days after the infamous Birmingham church bombing that resulted in the deaths of six children. Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, James Baldwin, a noted uh, novelist. Uh, SAS playwright and public intellectual and uh, we're going to be winding down our program uh, for today if you'd like to have access uh, to this uh, episode of the Pan-African Journal worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Saturday November 19 2022 just go to the Pan-African Radio Network that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal that's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. We're going to close out uh, with the music of Detroit's own Donald Byrd from his earliest recordings uh, from 1955. This one is called Bird's Eye View. This is Abayome Azikawe signing off, and have a beautiful week. 